Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Lisbeth Hoche, who is a distinguished professor of political science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We discuss her article, Cleavage Theory Meets Europe's Crises, Lipset, Rockan, and the Transnational Cleavage, which is co-authored with Gary Marx and was published in the Journal of European Public Policy in 2018. The article investigates if Lipset Rockan's famous cleavage theory can help explain the transformation of the European political space in the past 40 years. It postulates that a new transnational cleavage has emerged that primarily surrounds questions of immigration and European integration. The European financial and the so-called refugee crisis have worked as a catalyst for this cleavage. In contrast to the emergence of cleavages in the 19th century, today fully developed party systems already exist. As established parties cannot easily adjust their positions to integrate the new cleavage, new party families have emerged. If you want to know more about Lisbeth and her research, you can follow her on Twitter under at Hochelisbeth or visit her website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Lisbeth. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tariq. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about your 2018 article, which is co-authored with Gary Marks. And in the article, you investigate the emergence of a new transnational cleavage in Europe. Before we talk about the article in more detail, I just wanted to ask you, what was the motivation for writing the article? Sure. Um, well, it goes back a little while. Um, so as you, as you know, the, the article is part of a special issue of the, of the Journal of European Public Policy, right? Which was published in 2018, even though I think it was first online in 2017. And that itself uh, came out of a conference that we had at the European University Institute in 2016. And what we asked the participants to do is actually look at uh, theories that they normally work with and, and consider how the crises that Europe had gone through um, shed light on their theories, whether they feel these theories stand up to the events or whether they should adjust the theories. And, you know, when we were just beginning to think about this, probably way back in the fall of 2014, um, it seemed as if the euro crisis was about to be contained. And interestingly, that was long before the migration crisis, which um, really came out in the open in 2015, before Brexit, before Trump and so forth. And it was interesting because Gary and I had actually been working on, on other things for quite a number of years, almost for 10 years we'd been working on multi-level governance and ERC grant we had, I hadn't really been working on, on political parties or public opinion very much. But we were observing, of course, as, as citizens, as residents, mostly spending our time in Berlin and Amsterdam, the Euro crisis and, and how, that, how that really started to change politics in, in Europe and particularly anything related to European integration and how it had lit up nationalism. Uh, given tan parties a boost. And 
frankly, brought the Eurozone and perhaps even the EU to the brink of breakup. So it was real stuff, frankly, that as a citizen kept me sometimes awake at night. But intellectually, it really did the wheels turn in the sense that in a time span of four or five years, the academic discourse had shifted from to incorporate what we had called post-functionalism, post-functionalist thinking that thinks more about the role of identity in EU politics. I'm thinking of the work by Bechtel and Heinmuller, Krise and Grandi and the group around it. I, I tend to call them Tariq de Zurich School, uh, you know, <laughs> with Simon and Celia in it as well. Um, Peter de Wilde, Michael Soen in Berlin, a, a number of people, and I'm, I'm, I'm missing a lot of people. And that was just intellectually very interesting, it, but it wasn't something we'd been doing for, you know, almost 10 years. Um, so we really were itching to to return to the study of Europe. And so the initial idea was to to pick up almost where we left off in 2008, which is the last time we published a major article on this, and leverage post-functionalism to shed light on the euro crisis. Um, so why had the euro crisis pushed identitarian buttons rather than, well, or in addition to economic interest, that would be the question. And then came the migration crisis in the middle of 2015, um, which started a new round of identity politics and exposed uh, these tremendous strains throughout Europe's party systems, you know, and perhaps let me, we mentioned that in the article, indicative of it, perhaps the, um, the transformation of the AFD in Germany into a conventional TAN party with a very strong anti-immigrant platform. So what began as something that was just going to look at our theory and how that shed light on on crisis kind of was turned upside down and post-functionalism was focused too much on the EU simply. And we sensed that with the migration crisis, there was something larger, bigger, almost larger than life, um, historical moment that we were witnessing and living. And what we were in the middle of was some transformation of, of the structure of political conflict in Western societies. We sort of were living a, a critical juncture, you could say. And so that that kind of made us question or ask some deeper questions in the sense, should we just rethink the way we tend to think about party politics in Europe and beyond um, and, and question a the prom, the prominent Downsian view, spatial perspective, right? Where the debate is how issues map in a dimensional space, which can be one dimensional or can be two dimensional. There's a debate about what is the best perspective, but it is a spatial understanding of of party conflict and party competition. And that's where you locate voters and parties in that space. And it's about how these two relate. And so instead, what what we began to think is that we need to be bolder and, and go back to theories that we thought we'd left behind, cleavage theory in other words. Um, and so that's how we came to be there. And perhaps because we hadn't been working in that field, or at least had not been written, had been had not been writing on it for for a number of years, it was easier for us to kind of take a, a fresher perspective. We're not the only ones. One never, one rarely is. If, um, you know, when our theoretical axioms get questions, there's usually several people who are thinking along similar lines. Uh, I think we were part of a, a kind of a 
rethinking and more general rethinking in the field of party politics and and party voter relations. Mm -hmm. I have a very simple question, maybe uh, to to start with, for when we focus now more on the article itself, and it is, what is a political cleavage? Yeah, we had to ask that question ourselves, and and essentially the question was, can you just take the Lipset Rockham cleavage perspective and fast forward it to the 21st century right i mean can you do this unchanged or do you have to rethink the fundamentals and um and initially i think we were quite cautious um about how much of the lipset orkanian uh, cleavage apparatus could simply be transported to understanding uh, the politics of europe and and soon also the politics of western societies more general um so we we started with a number of simple questions and and simply asking ourselves if ourselves um if if there is a transformation of of the party system party political conflict what might you expect to see so we began with a a, a slightly looser definition of of cleavage theory and so what you would expect to see is a set of issues that cannot be subsumed in existing um, dimension of competitions, cross-cutting issues to the existing structure of political contestation, and we identify those as European integration and immigration. You'd expect that the salience of these issues would increase, so the temperature would, would um, heat up on them. You'd expect them, and this is key, I think, in, a, in any cleavage perspective, whether you take it wholesale or only partially, that the existing parties would have difficulty absorbing these issues and therefore would essentially be stuck. We talk about sticky parties in, in the article. Not, not being able to respond deftly to these new issues that cannot easily be subsumed in the existing dimensions, the left-right or the Galtan. And, and finally, that dissent within the mainstream parties would be therefore strong, but that the innovation would come from outside, through new parties, uh, which Catherine and Sarah call beautifully challenger parties. We call them simply new parties. And as a result of that, it's voters therefore moving and and giving space, creating the space for these new parties to actually become real challenges in, in the system. So that's a kind of a sotto voce understanding of cleavage theory. We were at first, and that's that's visible in the article, um, quite reluctant or circumspect about the other two components of a cleavage understanding in the typical Bartolini-Mer understanding of, of Lipset and Rokan's party cleavage, that you have social closure, that is an identifiable social base in the population, uh, and that you have a subjective identification that people identify with a side on this cleavage, alongside then party expression, expression through parties. I think we've come around to, to be bolder on this. But I think the reason why we were at first circumspect about and endorsing the entire cleavage perspective and apparatus was that we were keenly aware that contrast to Lipset and Rokan's cleavages, this was a new world in the sense that 
the cleavages that Lipsadonokan were talking about were pre-existing before the emergence of mass political parties. Um, so the social dimension, the sociality, the worldviews, the, the social basis and the subjective understanding of whether I'm on this side or on that side of a cleavage were prior to the creation of mass political parties. And so parties were more the product of societal conflict rather than the producers of it. And, and this is, of course, a different, it's a different world. The party systems are there, they're full-fledged. Um, and so they are there as actors alongside the formation of a new cleavage rather than some sort of product of it decades or centuries after. So inevitably, we realized parties would have to be somehow more actors in this drama, not just, you know, at the recipient end, at the receiver's end, but, you know, also actively shaping the the unfolding and the expression, the political expression of the cleavage. Mm -hmm. So... Before we, and we will talk certainly more about the, the role of political parties in these transformations. Before we do that, I thought there are two important concepts from your previous work that I think it would help um, to, to illustrate and, and, and explain maybe a little bit again. The first is the Galtan dimension. And the second is the idea of post-functionalism. You've mentioned them both, and I think both of them are very visible in the arguments in, in the article, but maybe you could explain both of these concepts um, a little bit again. Yeah, um, good questions. Let me start with Galtan, um, green alternative libertarian versus a traditional authoritarian nationalist. Galtan is a dimension of contestation alongside an economic left-right. So it's a way of thinking of how issues can hang together and of simplifying the spatial representation of this. So Galtan versus left-right could be used very easily in a spatial Downsian understanding of politics. And that's how most people have used it. That's how we've used it in the past, frankly, as well. So it's just a dimension of contestation. It's, it's an... It's a way of, of simplifying the, um, the presence of issues um, by, by bundling them along a, a particular dimension. Frankly, Galtan is, is our term. You could, others have used, um, you know, this Herbert's, Herbert Kitchell's libertarian authoritarian or left libertarian, right authoritarian dimension. And there's other terms out there. Hans-Peter Kriese has his own terms and so forth. So there's different ways of labeling what we all, I think, agree and agree on that there is a second dimension along which politics can uh, play out. And party competition can play out, uh, particularly visible in Europe alongside the economic dimension. And, and that one can gain by keeping these separate, at least analytically. A dimension of conflict is very different from a cleavage. So Galtan is not the same as the transnational cleavage. Cleavage comes with the baggage that we just talked about, right? So that's, that's Galtan. But it's, what it has is what I think carries over to the understanding of transnational cleavage is the importance of um, cultural issues, uh, particularly issues related to identity. Um, mostly national identity. Then, then you asked about post-functionalism. Post-functionalism is a theory that 
or a theoretical perspective in order to understand how politics very often can be understood as a tension between pressures for scale and pressures of, a, of community. And let me just say, I mean, if you're thinking of what the purpose is of government or governance more broadly, it's, it's a couple of things at the same time. One, it is in order to achieve uh, benefits of, of scale. Um, government is an instrument for the creation of public goods. But we humans usually can't do that by ourselves, so we need government to do it. And, and in a kind of a functionally oriented world, you would expect government to be at multiple scales because the problems we face tend to be uh, at multiple scales. I mean, you wouldn't want the European Union to uh, take care of kindergarten or garbage collection, or you wouldn't want local government to take care of um, climate change or uh, regulating trade. So there are strong functional imperatives to create government at multiple scales. But government is also the expression of community, of who we are as, as humans and how we relate to groups. And the, the problem is that that understanding of community can sit at odds with what seems functionally efficient. And um, so community has this double-edgedness of um, part of being a community um, tends to facilitate working together, collaborating together. Um, that is well known. This is uh, deeply ingrained in Eleanor Ostrom's work and work by behavioral economists and so forth. The, the importance of community in generating trust and uh, generating also altruism inside a community produced goods. But communities have that other side of uh, communities versus others, um, insiders, outsiders. Um, Teifel's interesting social identity work uh, there. And so communities tend to also be have a certain element of parochialism. That is, I, can, I may be wanting to do something for my community, but not for others. Now, the boundaries of communities, or how these are understood, um, may or may not you know, coincide with what, from a functional perspective, um, from an uh, efficiency perspective, is desirable for the creation of public goods. And so a lot of our politics can be seen through the lens of that tension. It's where there is this mismatch between problems that are thrown at us, imagine in the European Union, but the constraints of community. And so if you're thinking of the Euro crisis, I thought this was um, um, this tension in action. Um, clearly, there were very strong functional reasons for the Eurozone minimally, and perhaps the European Union uh, more broadly, to, to kind of um, think of solidarity, to, to have a, a fiscal policy alongside a monetary policy that could just cope with a tremendous um, asymmetrical shock that, that hits the, European, the Eurozone, right? But that was, I mean, why did it take so long? Much longer than, for example, in the United States? I mean, the Obama administration was, was begging almost for letting go of an austerity policy that prevented um, the European Union from... Um, intervening or for from um, um, providing more uh, fiscal fiscal aid to the southern economies which had been hit um, very strongly by the euro crisis i mean what came out in the politics was very much that we don't want to be 
um, making sacrifices, the limits of solidarity, uh, particularly the limits of monetary solidarity with the certain with the certain economies. So yes, um, underneath this kind of talking about the transnational cleavage is that kind of realization that what was um, politicized uh, around the euro crisis was precisely that tension um, between scale and community, or in in concrete terms, you know how far can we as Europeans go, are we willing to go to provide um, policy that that helps those um, elsewhere in the European Union? So what is, what what does it mean to be European? And it seemed as if populations in particularly the north of Europe and uh, had very different notions of that from populations in the south. So it showed the the limits of community in, in the European Union. You said um, a dimension is, of course, not a cleavage. Can you explain to me the difference between a dimension and a cleavage? So a dimension is is an analytical construct to simplify how the multitude of issues that are issues that are out there in a political space, how to simplify them and how they hang together, to see how they hang together, and. One can reduce this to one dimension, and a lot of people used to do that and talk about a general left-right. But I think you get more purchase, you get more bang for your buck, if you like, um, if you think of two dimensions. I like to play this game with my students in America here, and they find it quite easy to think in a two-dimensional space because also the way uh, politics and political rhetoric, uh, political campaigning, um, happens. There are cultural issues. There are economic issues, and so it's a it's it's a way of simplifying a comp an otherwise complex political reality. And I think it's useful both for voters and for us uh, analysts in understanding politics. But a cleavage is something different. A cleavage a cleavage is motivated by a particular set of issues that have been made salient by something exogenous, an exogenous shock, and that motivates social conflict as well as party political competition. So it's it's both more narrow and it's a lot deeper. It's more narrow in the sense that it kind of elevates a, a subset of issues. The, the class cleavage was at one set of issues, the religious cleavage, another set of issues. But it's also deeper in the sense that there is a there is an understanding that this is not only a set of cleavages that and um, issues that hang together, but underneath it, there is a durable social base. That is, there is an identifiable groups of people there that tend to care deeply about those issues and how these are settled in society, and that identify and there is identification with that social base. That is, these that people there who believe that this is a worldview, that this is a way. The world actually should be protected or should be built. And so they're very different ways of thinking about politics. One is a lot lighter than the other. Now, if we come back to the main uh, cleavage uh, that the article focuses on, the transnational cleavage, what exactly is the transnational cleavage? We call it transnational because I think at the core of it is a sense that the community, understood as national community, is um, 
contested. And, you know, what I didn't mention, what I should actually emphasize when one talks about a cleavage, and this is a key notion in the lips at Orkanian understanding, it, the importance of exogenous shocks in uh, changing people's life chances. So industrialization, changing the life chances of um, ordinary people, uh, peasants needing to move to get jobs in uh, in the new budding uh, industrial cities. For us, what we began to notice, and, and with the migration crisis, it became very clear to us, is that what has been happening in Europe and beyond in the world since the 1980s is a gradual uh, opening up perforation of national borders through um, increasing trade, increasing mobility, migration of people, um, and through the strengthening of international institutions. Um, and of course, in Europe, European integration has been, has been key in that. These have created loads of opportunities for a number of people, and you and I and people like us have been um, chief beneficiaries of this. But this has also changed the world for those who have not uh, been able to benefit from the increased opportunities and who see uh, trade um, as a threat because rightly or wrongly, and research is contested on that, they feel that they need to compete with Chinese workers, um, but they can't work at the same kind of wages as Chinese workers do. Or rightly or wrongly, that they need to compete with, um, this is how Trump um, is very persuasive in, in the United States, can compete with Hispanic workers, um, migrants coming. Um, or rightly or wrongly, that European integration constrains national sovereignty without um, providing benefits in return. And so we call it transnational because it is at the heart of conflict of to what extent should our community be national and national only, or to what extent should it be open and, and welcoming and embracing these kinds of changes that have been happening over the past few decades. So the importance of a cleavage is that it just doesn't come overnight. It's usually um, produced as a result of developments that have been might have been going on for decades. If you're thinking of the lips at Okanian cleavages, sometimes for centuries, right? So one main argument then in the article is, and you've mentioned this before, that in the Lipset Rockan world, in this historical perspective, uh, the cleavages came first and the parties came afterwards, to simplify a bit. And your argument now is to say it matters a lot that now we have established party systems and that that is a new cleavage that comes after party systems are established. Why does the sequencing matter or for what does it matter? I think it matters because there are established parties out there that therefore would have an interest in, in trying to cope with that cleavage and somehow position themselves. Now, I was actually, Tariq, I was, I was looking, um, just thinking through a bit of our conversation. I was looking at our um, 
chess, most recent chess data, the Chapel Hill Expert Survey data, 2019. And I was wondering, well, you know, why don't parties, wouldn't parties shift? I mean, given, for example, that the issue of immigration is still so salient, why wouldn't they shift the mainstream parties? And maybe they have shifted. I mean, I'm always kind of second guessing, is this truly, is this truly possible? These parties are not going to shift. How sticky are they? And I was just looking and it is amazing. I was just looking at 2010 when we had the latest um, position data on, on immigration and then 2019. And the shift across Central, um, Eastern, East and Western Europe is on average a half point out of an 11 point scale. So there's a tremendous, and, and that includes all parties. That includes also the tan parties and the green parties where you might uh, presumably see more of a shift. Uh, so there's a tremendous stability. So I, I told at the beginning that we were at first circumspect about um, you know, what elements of, of the cleavage theory from the Lipset Yorkanian heavy apparatus really are indeed as, as valid today. Um, and we thought that sticky parties was one of them. Um, but frankly, uh, the stickiness is even stronger than I would have imagined. And I find it a bit of a puzzle because you would think that political parties would use their agency in order to position themselves to moving moving voters. It's voters moving more than political parties do. Now, the, the ones that moved as the exceptions, and I, I wrote them down here, are um, Sweden. I see some movement there. And then I see some movement towards a, a more a pro-immigration attitude uh, in some parties in, in the UK and in Ireland. But you're talking about of um, more than 200 parties, actually 230 parties, 17 parties only have shifted more than two points out of an 11-point scale between 2010 and 2019. Um, the bulk of the, these parties in the East, in Eastern Europe, um, where we know the issue of immigration is a more, um, it has more recently become salient. This is where the salience, and we see that also in our numbers, in our figures in, in chess, um, has increased a lot in, 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 uh, in Eastern Europe. So, yes, I, I, I would have expected this agency to matter more, but um, so far I haven't seen it. I think where there is a difference is um, in, in the durability of parties. I think there is a greater fluidity in parties than there was in, a, in the Lipset-Rokanian world. But voter blocks, I think, are seem to me, and that seems to be the research that is coming out increasingly on, on polarization, affective polarization, and also ideological polarization. Voter blocks seem to be more stable. What might just be more up for grabs is what kind of parties, or what kind of what, num what label of a party is, is going to present, represent that voter block. Um, so it is tremendously driven by voter change and surprisingly limited in terms of party change, at least for the mainstream parties. In the article, you also give a reason or, or some reasons for the stickiness of parties. 
Can you explain that a little more? Why is it so difficult for parties to change their position or to, to incorporate new issues? I think reputation is key. You know, and this is not only, it's clear from chess, but um, Russ Dalton has come around um, to this as well. Russ Dalton's recent book is, is very clear that, that indeed, um, looking at that from the side of the voter, parties are not the ones shifting around. Um, uh, so parties have to be careful about moving away from what they're known from. Parties are also, by and large, um, you know, just have a, a history of a programmatic commitment that they may not be willing to go. They are invested in in a particular set of positions for which they are known and they have committed to policies and uh, moving away from that is very difficult. It's easier, of course, if if it's on a dimension that is secondary to what you're standing for. So if you're an economic, a party on economic, known for economic issues, it, you might have more space on a secondary dimension on cultural cultural issues, for example. And that's work as shown by Yale Kudam um, has shown that that um, there is a, a, a differential possibility there. Jan Ralfni also differential possibility for parties to move on a second dimension. So that's one reason, I think, a key reason for why the innovation tends to come from the outside. And this is also consistent with the work uh, with Catherine and that Catherine and, and Sarah have done to show that the, the entrepreneurship um, is uh, tends to come from, from um, new parties, uh, the challenges, as they call that. A second point that you mentioned in the article and that I thought was really interesting was a focus on um, activists and people invested in the parties. And I think it's interesting because from, especially from this perspective of party competition cleavage, uh, it's sometimes difficult for us to think of parties as political organizations. And I was very much, when I now prepared again for this, for this podcast, very much reminded when I talked to Herbert Kitchell, how he uh, very, um, vividly described the tension between the environmental movement on the one hand and the uh, the social democratic established social democratic parties at the time also just mentioning how different the people were and i guess this is something that's very visible again now when you have these activist social movements let's think of fridays for future or also black lives matter and then they um it seems so difficult also to integrate them in existing political structures and political organizations because they are just so different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, absolutely. I actually was reading um, his, his uh, rereading his piece with um, Hellemans, uh, Staff Hellemans, um, um, just unpacking the Belgian um, Green Parties, which is a lovely piece, indeed showing the different strands within these Green Parties. Um based on some very nice um, survey work. Um, and, and you see that work in the Democratic Party. I'm, you know, as a citizen, um, somewhat active there, not, not hugely active, but, but you see the, 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 the fights within the party between the different, within the different strands very clearly. And that is, that is indeed another reason why a party as a party may find it very difficult to move unless... And this is what what I uh, what I want to emphasize. Unless, of course, and and 
the party gets captured by one radical wing and then becomes a representative of that radical wing. And this is precisely, of course, what happened with the Republican Party in the United States. This is also what happened in the context of Brexit with the Conservative Party, right? I mean, those are exceptional circumstances. It happened also with Fidesz. So it's interesting that in the chess data, Fidesz is one of the very few parties that has moved in positioning, both on European integration and on immigration over the past decade, moved massively more than four points on a on a 11 point on immigration and I think two or three points on a seven point on European integration. So these are big moves. They're very rare. And it is because, and you put your your finger on the pulse there, Tariq, it is indeed because the different fractions in a party tend to kind of make it very difficult for the party as a whole to move, unless in this exceptional circumstance that the party gets captured by a particular by one of the wings, and their and their institutions come into play. This is more likely in a um, in a first past the post system, where party breakup um, is committing suicides. It's like harakiri, and so um, if one wants, if a subgroup wants to move politics in a in a different direction, then it's better off trying to capture the party from within than to break away. So PR systems obviously are, are much more inclined or much more kind of um, hospitable to these warring, a warring faction breaking away and creating a new party. And this is exactly how many of the tan parties, um, but also the radical left parties emerged as breakaways from um, larger parties. And then I think the important argument in, in your article is that because mainstream parties are so sticky and inflexible, the new cleavage really gets mobilized by two sets of party families. You emphasize the, them as right, tan parties, so uh, traditional authoritarian nationalists, big overlap with, uh, with the radical right. Once these parties have mobilized that cleavage, so green parties on the one hand, libertarian green parties on the one hand, radical right parties on the other hand, um, is it is it possible for mainstream parties to get voters back from them that have been mobilized on that cleavage? I mean, I, I would think yes. I mean, first of all, a cleavage perspective is very different from a realignment perspective. So a cleavage perspective um, starts from the presumption that there is a layering of conflicts in society, right? So it's it's not because we now claim and want, we tend to see a, a transnational cleavage, that the cleavage around class politics or particularly religious politics necessarily disappears, right? So um, cleavage perspective is more see, is better seen as, a, as a akin to a geological process of layering, right? And so, and, and a realignment perspective, however, leads one to expect that prior conflict is replaced by a new dimension of conflict. The realignment perspective is much more uh, you know, akin to a dimensional uh, perspective on, on party competition. So if, if what I'm saying is correct, that is, this is a new layer of conflict, then this should also provide opportunities 
or a possibility for um, parties that are more wedded to older cleavages to reignite some of the some of the issues that have to do with the older cleavages, right? I mean, it's not. I I would not expect that transnational conflict is going to be the all and nothing type of conflict that is going to uh, structure European societies, right? There is, and particularly not in societies, um, in Western societies in particular in Europe, where there are these deep-rooted other conflicts that are still have salience for groups, subgroups in societies, right? I mean, we, we make it, I think, very clear in, in the paper that we're not talking about a wholesale uh, run of voters to either the tan or the green side or the gal side of the transnational cleavage. We're talking about subgroups, identifiable subgroups of, of people who, uh, who are more inclined, who because of the way they live, because they, the way they have been affected by the exogenous shocks that we just talked about, uh, most inclined to, to position themselves on that cleavage. But there is a wide swath of voters for whom this kind of uh, this kind of reality is is perhaps uh, less salient, and so those should be probably those should be more amenable to the traditional mainstream politics. I don't see the end of mainstream politics as we knew it um, over the since we've known it since um, you know in the post-war period. I don't know if I'm doing the, the Zurich school justice, although I should probably do my best. Um, so my interpretation of especially uh, Hans-Peter Kriese's work there would be that they argue that what you refer to as the Galtan dimension has been replaced by a new dimension or even a new cleavage um, around questions of, you can call it universalism, parochialism, something that's very similar to the, the, the transnational cleavage. So you would say that is not the case. Well, I would say there are two different ways of looking at, at, at uh, party competition or at the structure of political conflict is a better way of putting it. So I would, I would continue to say there is a dimensional way of looking at it and then there is the cleavage way of looking at it. So I... I, I'm very cautious about falling into, a, I would say, falling in the trap of, of thinking that conflict gets whole placed, wholesale replaced, a particular conflict gets wholesale replaced by another conflict. I think there is a layering of conflicts. Mm -hmm. Is a good example maybe the Netherlands, where we have two radical right parties, and it seemed the 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 PVV, the party of Herd Wilders, um, really tried to de-emphasize questions on the let's say old questions of libertarian authoritarian in terms of, for example, LGBT rights, gender equality, and these issues, and really focused on the threat of Islam and the the, the threat of immigration, the transnational perspective. While with Thierry Baudet and I think with other parties in Europe, we really see a repoliticization uh, of issues surrounding gender and feminism and so on. Yeah. And of course, a PR system gives uh, a lot more space for this, right? To have both of these uh, conversations going on at the same time. Um, what you're saying is very interesting in the sense that 
um, a graduate student of mine here, Caroline Lancaster, um, just published a paper where she argues that in the Netherlands, using the um, the panel data there, the issues of immigration and traditionalism have become disconnected. That is that um, anti-immigration positions may go together with um, progressive ideas about gender and LGBT, right? Uh, particularly in the younger generation. And so what you're, you're saying, actually, something that is consistent with this is that, I mean, right now we're seeing in the Netherlands two parties that we tend to put in the TAN camp or the radical right camp, but with actually um, quite um, different profiles, right? And and so the I would argue that particularly if you have um, permissive electoral systems like this, where it is feasible for political parties to survive um, by... Uh, separating themselves, setting up their own party, you can get these um, more diverse uh, conversations going on. Um, this may be also one reason why my, I mean, this is my personal opinion, but I think the divides in Europe on um, the transnational divide in Europe may be um, less threatening to democracy or to put it a little less dramatically, less um, fundamental to to the kind of the shape of party political competition um, than, than they are in um, first-past-the-post systems, whether that's particularly the United States, but also Britain, uh, with then, of course, the very special issue of, of Brexit um, that has mobilised, um, you know, these emotive appeals, um, these identitarian appeals. But it's interesting that also Hungary has a, a relatively... Um, First past the post system that makes it and has been a system that has been strengthened in that way, in order to enhance the the polarization in the society. So I think PR systems may have a robustness that we wouldn't necessarily have predicted they they had. If you think of your typical textbook knowledge of PR systems versus plurality system systems of ten twenty years ago, one typically would have associated stability. Um, with the plurality system and robustness versus uh, extremism with the plurality system rather than with the PR systems. I think we need to revisit some of these wisdoms we thought we had. Mm -hmm. In the conversation, you already mentioned it, and also the article, I think, focuses really on the the role of the two big crises, the euro crisis, the migration crisis, to, I would say, make the... The, the underlying conflicts more tangible for people and because of this um, make po politicize this, these conflicts. Now, of course, we're going through another, um, what you, you call the migration crisis, a larger than life crisis. So I guess this is now larger than larger than life, um, it, it feels at least. Do you think, or would, do you see any conflicts that the current pandemic um, and everything that's attached to it is making more visible and as a consequence might be politicized after this crisis? I think I do. Look, I mean, in, in the first round, I think the European Union has dealt relatively well with the COVID crisis. By the way, I was, I was actually living in Italy in the spring of this year, um, so very much under lockdown. And uh, you know, it, you know. So I, I have some personal experience of 
of how that hits you in the stomach, if you like, so and how it hits people in the stomach. This has been a big, a big uh, accelerated or accelerator for um, the conflicts, the kind of this new stage in in uh, in political conflict that we're seeing. Uh, what do you call this? Um, the battle around transnationalism, or whether you call it something else. And I think COVID. Originally, I thought COVID would would actually um, kind of re-establish the the importance of mainstream parties, uh, re-establish the importance of of conventional politics. But it's interesting that um, that seems to come home to roost now in a different way. Um, again, let me just take our uh, chess survey, Chapel Hill expert survey. We did a quick. Um, COVID-related survey, speed survey in June. Um, and we asked our experts, our party experts, to rank or to assess where political parties stood on four questions having to do with COVID. And two in particular are interesting in this respect. One was um, where the party stood in terms of emphasizing containing the virus versus opening up the economy. Um, and the other was one about science and the extent to which science is, is essential for good policy, public policy. And I was surprised, particularly on the second question, how strongly related the responses were to the Galtan um, question, which you know taps into, which is very closely, um, which taps into this cultural and this identitarian conflict at heart. Um, the correlation was 0.6 in West, among Western European parties and just a little lower, 0.52 among East European parties. Um, you know, with an, in the expected direction, that is, tan parties, radical right parties, and also some conservative parties were more likely to question, to doubt the importance of science for public policy. While uh, on the Gal side, um, this was, this was exactly the opposite. Same is true for the first question on um, economy versus um, health, if you like. But it was particularly pronounced on that. And I think it's a bellwether that um, when when the temperature is, is so high, when there's the conflict is so high and when emotions get involved, this is the essence of a cleavage perspective, that this is a, something that people are committed to. They are, um, and that involves their emotional as well as rational, rational faculties, right? So when emotions are involved, this tends to become a, a kind of a way through which, a lens through which uh, new conflicts or new issues um, are interpreted and are placed and made sense of. And so COVID, which, uh, which is a health issue and should have been an issue that could transcend any kind of traditional cleavage, particularly in the European context where there's a strong uh, commitment to public health and, and uh, health is considered the right, having access to health is considered the right rather than something you purchase, um, you know, your freedom to purchase or not to purchase um, health. Um, and it hasn't. I think it's, it's gotten wrapped up in, in this transnational cleavage um, in quite a remarkable way and probably will strengthen the cleavage and, and make it and broaden it in terms of the kind of issues. I said the core of the, the core issues are European integration and immigration, but I'm I'm seeing that that this could be um, widened to include other issues. It's clear also on climate change, and we know that by just I mean the most recent 
2019 European elections, the AfD ran posters um, that were um, ridiculizing climate change and, that were, uh, and at the same time were blaming Europe um, for, um, for imposing too rigid uh, policies with respect to climate change. So making that connection between an issue that's wedged in the transnational cleavage firmly, European integration, and a new issue that wasn't necessarily drawn in, right? And this is where, to get back to your points of parties and and agency, this is where parties can make a difference, right? Because they can they can facilitate or certainly they can exploit this this kind of these these kind of connections and they can enhance um um, or strengthen the connections that might otherwise not be clear in voters' minds. So I think the uh, transnational cleavage has some life in it. In fact, um, probably will be with us for uh, some decades. Um, it's very apparent sitting in the United States, but I would guess this is also the case for much of Europe. Lisbeth, we're already coming to an end of the podcast. There's one final question that I always ask the uh, guests, and that is on reading recommendations. One political science piece and one non-political science piece, maybe a piece of fiction. Ha! Huh. Well, um, you can't see me, and nor can your listeners, but... You know, my probably my favorite political science book and kind of my guide, my compass is Eleanor Ostrom's Governing the Commons. And I actually have it around here. And maybe for two reasons. One is, I mean, of course, the, the key of that book is the fundamental problem of human cooperation or the fundamental problem of creating governance, right? The production of, of public goods. And this has been uh, a red thread through my work as well. Um, and what, what I like intellectually in there is her very realistic understanding of human motivation um, and context. You know, the, 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 um, the, the, that humans are both members of communities, which she beautifully defines as um, bounded groups of people who share a past and a future. Um, I would slightly amend that and say bounded groups of people who uh, perceive themselves as sharing a past and a future. It's not so elegant in terms of writing, but I think it's more accurate right? because it is something that is uh, subjective as well as more than objective often, right? There's bounded groups of people who share a past and a future, but who then... Um, kind of solve of, or may possibly solve the problems of cooperation within um, context, institutional context. And of course, she is an institutionalist um, coming at it from a rational choice perspective, but very, very kind of um, subtle about how, how the incentives are structured precisely by the institutions and the layeredness of, of institutions. It's something I regularly turn to um, for inspiration. She was also, I had a chance to to know her a bit. She was just a wonderful, earthy, um, and tremendously sharp, and at the same time warm person. 
And the other thing I like in the book is towards the end in particular, that she makes that sharp distinction between a theoretical framework and a theoretical model. Right? And I don't know whether you remembered it. Most of us have read the Ostrom book, it's one of the most cited books there. But a theoretical model is is, as she calls it, um, just one extreme version of what you might get out of a theoretical framework. A framework is is a is a tool to simplify a complex reality by uh, giving you um, a sense of variables that you should be thinking of and putting these variables into some order. Right? It's like a grid that you can impose on on a complex reality to solve your intellectual puzzle or your policy puzzle, because she was very interested in, in policy relevance as well. A theoretical model is, is one that fixes the parameters of some of these variables and sets them to a constant. Um, and that's what theories, of course, are meant to do. Um, but by doing that, they also have to be careful. They have to be aware that you may just uh, fix the parameters in ways that uh, become unrealistic or have limited validity for part of the reality you're looking at. And I like to kind of play with these this kind of contrast and, and think that we as a, a scholarly community can can be useful in, in, in multiple ways. Not all of us need to think in terms of um, elegant theoretical models, um, but we can think in, in terms of contributing to um, to a kind of a broader, broader kind of cumulative knowledge and, and insight in, in a complex world by just thinking in terms of theoretical frameworks and filling in um, the information in there. So that, that's for the political, um, political science book. It's not quite directly related to, to the topic at hand, but it is, I think, a book that, that, that has, um, big meaning across a range of substantive topics. You want to say something? You want me to say something about my non-political science? Yes, that would be great. Yes. Okay. Well, um, it's actually not a book. It's an author. It's Isaac Asimov. And I don't know whether you know him, but he's a science fiction writer. Um, and he's best known probably for his series, The Foundation Series. Um, he's an American also died in the 1990s and wrote most of his work in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And I think you can, one can kind of um, sense the shadow of World War II, um, some of the books he wrote during World War II. Um, and his trilogy, um, the Foundation series, um, which is probably um, the core of his work, um, is about a, a, a scientist... Harry Seldon is placed tens of thousands of years in the future. There is a galactic empire. So humanity has uh, conquered the galaxy. Uh, there's uh, trillions and trillions and trillions, quadrillions of people living on it. And the galactic empire is beginning to die. Um, Harry Seldon is a scientist who is developing a is trying to develop a a way of of predicting um, the course of of history of humanity um, through and he calls his approach the psychohistory. 
So it's kind of drawing on um, human history in order to predict the course of history and the course of, um, the, and particularly then the the future and, and of, of the galactic empire and, and succession of it. And it's just a, a very kind of, a very um, deep and, uh, first of all, I like the, 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 the march of history, the big, the end of empire. Apparently Asimov began to write it after he'd uh, read uh, Gibson's book on the fall of the Roman empire. So I like this idea of deep history, the end of empire, and the non-linearity about it. And throughout the book is also this, this sharp tension between um, what will be lost once the empire is gone, um, that is the benefits of scale. Obviously Asimov doesn't talk in terms of scale versus community, but I just can read it in there. The benefits of scale of trade and peace, first and foremost. Um, but the tension of these very different communities, because what humanity had done as it spread through the galaxy is essentially retreat in more culturally homogenous communities. And it's clear that Asimov uh, deplores this as a writer, and so do some of his characters. But he observes it so keenly of this tendency of human groups to retreat in their parochial community and by and by doing that essentially impeding um you know benefiting from the from the 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 positive benefits of scale of of being a member of the galactic empire harry selden thinks hopes to develop this 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 kind of combination of mathematics and sociology through which he would be able to no longer to prevent the end of the empire. It's too far gone, it's too far corroded. But perhaps shorten the time between the fall of the empire and then a period of barbarism that might happen and then the creation of a second empire. He can predict that if nothing were to happen, if there were no intervention, after the fall of the empire, there would be at least 30,000 years of barbarism. But he thinks by a little bit of tweaking, and here you have a sense of path dependency, as if he read Paul Pearson, um, sensitive dependence upon initial conditions, a little bit of tweaking at the beginning, just a little, you can deflect the, that natural course and reduce that time of barbarism from 30,000 years to 1,000 years. So the book is about this, and then about the thousand years, and how indeed, with all sorts of problems along the way, uh, it becomes possible to reduce that kind of barbarism for at least parts of the um, empire or the, the remnants of the empire. It's, it's deep in human psychology, um, and, and just I, I just like to retreat in it. But maybe there is also some urgency now, because we... I think many of us feel that we are at the end of some empire somehow, um, some end of some era of more reasonable politics. We just don't quite know where we go from here, whether this is the end of our Pax Americana, just as it was the end of the Roman Empire at some point, which, by the way, it took about a thousand years for the Roman Empire to be, or for Europe, where the Roman Empire had to be, the parts of Europe where the Roman Empire had been established, to get back to a similar level of, of 
affluence or prosperity, right? Thank you so much, Lisbeth. Thanks for the really interesting conversation. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast.